y'all been doing out there following me and supporting me. It's all gratitude. I didn't know that appreciating people was something done when they are not around. It is done alone, an extension of a growing spirit. Understanding how an emotion is so subtle and deep causes another. That is all. Give yourself a hand. Thank you, my friends. In terms of our podcast, it's doing very well. I still want more questions from all of y'all. Feel free to ask me anything. In fact, on our next question and answer, we're going to have you on the podcast so you can ask it to me yourself directly. We're trying to make it exciting. We want to know what it is that you want to hear about that's going on in the cultural setting. So take care. Have a great Saturday. And everybody know that I love you and appreciate you for sticking out with me and taking this journey with me. Have a great day. Welcome to another episode of The Wall Behind and Beyond. I'm your guest host, Erica Youngblood, filling in for your incarcerated host, Philip, who sends his regards to everyone. As always, we want to bring awareness to issues facing men and women incarcerated and the toll it can take on their loved ones left behind. Today, we are joined by Mrs. Erica Rodriguez, an advocate out of the state of Georgia. Erica is no stranger to our podcast, as she was on a few months ago, where we talked with several advocates from Georgia who raised awareness about the issues men and women are facing behind the wall there. Please check out that episode titled, Georgia Women Advocates Speak Out for Prison Reform. It was very powerful. Today, she joins us to bring updates on her work, but more importantly, she will share her plight in advocating for her husband, who is currently incarcerated. Erica, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. How are you, my friend? I'm doing good. Good, good. (laughs) Okay, well, let's get started. Now, these questions were created by Philip, so I'm just going to dive right in. And again, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for Uh, having me. Thank you. So the first question is, please tell our listeners where you are from and a little bit about your background. Okay, well, um, I'm from Georgia. I was born here, raised here, pretty much lived here my whole entire life. A little bit about me. I was a nursing student back in 2017, all the way up until about 2020. That's kind of right before I, you know, started doing my criminal justice advocacy work, you know, and it it all started with my husband, the reason why I got into the criminal justice advocacy stuff. All right. Thank you so much for that. How did you get involved in prison reform? What was it that started you on this journey? And I know earlier you mentioned it was pretty much your husband, but if you could elaborate a little bit about that. Right. So back in January of 2020, um, me and my husband, we were both arrested um, on some conspiracy charges. And I was, you know, pregnant at the time when I was incarcerated, you know, and I just when I was being arrested, you know, it was very like aggressive, you know, and I'm looking at them like, you know, I'm, you know, pregnant and, you know, but, you know, they were very judgmental. Okay. You know, and, you know, I just kind of looked at them and I was like, I'm a decent person, you know, like I'm a nursing student. I have goals and stuff like that. But, you know, they didn't see me that way or treat me that way, Mm -hmm. you know, especially with my husband, you know, being Latino, you know, and he had his friend in the car who I believe he was from Jamaica. So, you know, it was just very, it was very different, you know, from any experience that I had you know, had before. And, you know, I just seen the way that they were coming at us, you know, wanting to give us 30 years. They wanted us all to flip on each other, you know, and the fact that our crime didn't involve any violence, 
theft or drugs, you know, it was just amazing to me how, how they treated us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he got sent to prison and, you know, I just kind of started really, you know, investigating things, I guess you could say, like looking up laws and, you know, that's when I just started, Oops, sorry, that's just when I started to see that, you know, it wasn't just me and him that was going through it. It was a lot of other people and a lot of other people's situations were, you know, worse than ours. So that's, that's pretty much what, you know, really got me motivated into doing the reform stuff. Got you. Got you. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, My next question would be, how has it been to be married to someone who's been inside since the age of 15? He's been out for two months and went back in again. How's that been for you? It's been very, very stressful. You know, it's not something that I would, you know, wish on um, my worst enemy. There's good days. There's bad days, you know, especially like with him and, you know, his emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that a lot more has came to surface about him, you know, since, you know, when, when we first met and, you know, right. and I believe it has a lot to do with the, you know, amount of years of incarceration that he's spent inside prison, you know, he was released in 2019 and he came home, you know, like I wouldn't sit there and say like, he didn't know how to do anything, but there was a lot of things that, he should have been able to do that shouldn't have been hard for him, but it was hard for him because it was new to him. You know what I mean? And so, you know, we did struggle with that, you know, communication between us, you know, sometimes is, you know, a bit difficult, you know, especially on the bad days and stuff like that. You know, he, he doesn't know how to communicate. They have communication, you know, amongst each other, but the difference between in there than out here, you know, like us having a conversation versus, you know, two people who are incarcerated having a conversation. It's just, it's not the same. Right, right. And, you know, that actually leads me into my next question where you can delve a little bit deeper because you've obviously witnessed this, but how has this affected him mentally and emotionally? He has to be suffering some kind of mental health issues. How is he coping? It definitely has you know, affected him mentally and emotionally, especially in July of this year, he had a pick month, which, you know, allows them, well, I'm not sure how many people are familiar with it, but, you know, first you receive a TPM, which is a tentative uh, parole month, which, you know, is where the parole board will look at you and they'll decide whether, you know, you go home earlier than, you know, your max out date. And then the pick is just kind of like, you can only get like 12 points and, you know, that's like 12 months off of your sentence. And with him originally having a TPM for January of 2023, he had six pick points, which brought the TPM to potentially would have been July of 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, he was actually maxed out at that um, at that pick month. And so I feel like that kind of took him in a very dark place in a very deep, deep depression. And it's just... He's not coping the way that I guess you would sit there and say that somebody would be expected to cope, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I've actually been trying to get him, you know, some help and Mm -hmm. everything like that inside the prison system. There's not many resources and there's not too many people who are actually willing to sit there and say, hey, like, yeah, this this guy, you know, he's going through some things and he needs help. Because that was going to be my next question, Erica, to lead into that are there mental health resources even available to him? 
where he is? They're going to tell you that there's mental health services, you know, and there may be mental health services, but there comes this, you know, this issue of if the, the offender refuses or if the offender doesn't ask for the services, then the services are not given. Mm. Um, they sit there and will tell you that they can't force them to receive the services, mm-hmm. which, you know, is just a bit mind blowing for me in a sense, because somebody who eventually becomes incompetent, mm-hmm. um, how can they reach out and sit there and say like, Hey, like I do need these resources. You know, I do need mental health when they don't even realize they need help because of, you know, their, their mental state, Exactly. you know, and in this situation, you know, that unfortunately that, that is him. He is, you know, detached from reality and, you know, that he's made comments of, he feels like he's never coming home and he's kind of, you know, just given up. So for him to ask for any type of help right now is nowhere in his mind. And they have classes and programs and stuff like that there, but they don't really enforce them, you know, and, and I feel like they should be, you know what I mean? But these guys and women, you know, all they do is sit in a cell all day and, you know, they have nothing positive, nothing to motivate them. And you bring up a good point. You have to be in a state to ask for help, right? To know that you need help. But when you're altered already, you're not in a place of good reasoning. So what are they doing to meet those men and women incarcerated at the level where they are? You know, you're expecting right. someone also to go, hey, I need help. I'm depressed. I'm this, I'm that. They don't have that. So you got to meet them where they are. So thank you for bringing that up. And so I'll go right into the next question, um, which you kind of talked about this, but but let's talk about it a little bit more. What do you think is needed for individuals like your husband who may have substance abuse issues on top of trying to rehabilitate themselves while still in? You know, I I don't actually know the answer to, to this question just because it's, it's a very difficult one, you know, especially taking into consideration that the Georgia department of corrections and all of our prisons and TCs, and, you know, we have RSAT programs here, they're swamped with drugs Mm. Um, so you know it's like how do you help somebody who has a drug abuse issue when the drugs are in their face you know they can't actually be taken away from them you know because they're right there and when I tell you that there's probably more drugs in our prison than it is on the streets I think that literally inside prison all they do is walk to the next cell over from them and there's plenty of drugs, plenty of access to for them. So the only thing that I could really say that could help is there needs to be a facility for people who have, you know, drug abuse um, issues or, you know, maybe drugs are the reason why they got there. Um, unfortunately, my husband, he didn't have a drug issue from my knowledge before entering into prison, which is also hard to keep a facility like that when you also have officers who can be you know you you can just offer them a certain amount of money you know a large amount of money and they'll just bring it in so when you have officers like that doing it you know it it makes it kind of hard not sitting there saying that there's not other offenders that are bringing this stuff in you know through drones and you know whatnot but there there definitely just needs to be a more secure facility to keep the drugs out Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm And you bring up excellent points. One, it's right there in their face, right? And so Mm -hmm. 
the mental health needs to be right there in their face too. You know, mental health assistance, substance abuse programs need to be right there in their face. And unfortunately they're not. But then you also bring up the different avenues that drugs are even finding their way, you know, behind the wall. So, you know, thank you for bringing up those good points. Right. Um, I have one little thing I would like to add um, sure. just due to the fact that, you know, we have programs here, which again, they're called RSAT. Mm-hmm. It's a residential substance abuse uh, treatment. And these RSAT programs are, I think we have like two or three, but these RSAT programs are pretty much on general population prisons, campuses. So, you know, my husband actually went to two of them, which he didn't, you know, complete the programs. He didn't even probably last, you know, not even a month in them. But what I've seen from these, this program is that there would be people in the RSAT program or people in the general population side who would just walk things over so you know it's kind of pointless that we have an rsat program that's supposed to help you know with drug abuse when it's right beside a general population and they have all the drugs there and they just walk them over thank you for adding that i I had no idea and this one we're going to pivot a little bit philip asked tell us about your dad and how did his passing affect you so with my dad um you know he struggled with uh drug abuse probably as far as back as I can remember, you know, I was very small when I learned that my dad, you know, had drug abuse problem, probably could have been about five. But I grew up with my my dad inside uh, the Georgia Department of Corrections, the same prisons that my husband, you know, is being passed through. He was there uh, as a as I was a child. Back in 2016, my dad passed away over an overdose. He wasn't inside prison, but he was on his way to go back to prison. But, you know, I believe that, you know, my father probably was still doing drugs while he was in prison. Um, You know, I was, you know, but just seeing everything now and seeing how there's drugs there, I'm pretty sure there was drugs, you know, then there too. And so my dad, I don't think he ever actually got help for his drug abuse problem. And when he came home, you know, he was still doing drugs. And, you know, like I said, in August of 2016, he left us. And it was very hard for me burying my dad. I actually developed a lot of anxiety because, you know, just the whole situation was emotionally stressful for me. Um, It was really hard to cope with. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I always tell people that I never want to have to bury another person that I love from a drug overdose because I've already buried one. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, and this makes me pivot a little bit from Philip's question because, you know, I can just hear the pain in your voice and then what you're going through now for families like yourself, loved ones, friends, what would you say um, is needed or would be helpful as far as supportive services for us, right? You're someone who's going through it now. What are some supportive services that would help you? And other families. The most supportive service that could be offered to us would be, you know, mainly with the Georgia Department of Corrections. You know, they pretty much own our loved ones who are incarcerated, you know, and pretty much we have to go through them, you know, to do anything, you know, for our individual who is incarcerated with them. You know, there's been times where they've been, you know, pretty cooperative, you know, or helpful, but I've ran into a stage now where they're not you know and it's everything that they have you know quote tried to help with or be supportive on it's just really been a bluff Mm. um you know so like I said it 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 mainly falls down with 
them being supportive for us because, because, you know, I feel like people can be supportive for us, you know, especially when we're out here advocating mm-hmm. um, for our loved ones and, you know, to change laws and, you know, things like that. Like, I feel like people, they, they should listen more when they see people like us who, you know, have somebody incarcerated and listen to the things that we have going on or. Yeah. And it's just like, as you were talking, I just using my nursing brain, I remember how for family members, you know, they would develop these caregiver support groups and, you know, and so as you're talking, I'm just, my, my, my brain is uh, turning, thinking about, you know, how many support groups exist for the families and the loved ones of men and women incarcerated, because we have specific unique issues that we deal with. And, um, that's definitely something we need to look into. So that's, you know, just as you were talking, I was just like, wow, you know, so, but let me keep going. What other organizations do you partner with? So I am one of the members of FAIR fighting against institutionalized railroading. Um, The president over FAIR is Demita Bishop. Um, I know that Phil, you know, knows of Demita. She, he, well, he's talked to, you know, her and stuff like that in the past. Um, I've been with her in the organization for about about two to two and a half years, I would say. I haven't really, you know, partnered with other organizations or anything like that. We do tend to, you know, cross paths and, you know, work with each other because like I always tell people, you know, we'll never see change if we're not working together because um, it's not a lot of us. There's not as many as we need or that we should have. So, you know, when it comes down to, you know, working together, always try to encourage people like let's let's work together because we need each other. I love that answer because you're you're spot on. I mean, we need each other. This is hard work. It can get heavy at times and no one should have to shoulder this one burden. You know, all of the injustices on their own, though, sometimes we do. And so, like you said, if you're in this this business of advocacy and abolition work, make sure you're reaching out to someone for support, mental health support, just support in general, because it is heavy work. So, you know, thank you for bringing that up. And you actually touched on this earlier, but this is the next question and feel free to talk a little bit more about it. But tell us why this work means so much to you. Well, I mean, you know, it it all follows down, you know, with me having somebody who's you know, incarcerated or who's been incarcerated, they've, those have been two people, you know, who are very important in my life. Um, You know, my dad, you know, because if it wasn't for him, there would be no Erica. And, you know, my, my husband, you know, like he's, he's very important to me. And, you know, I, I, I love him a lot. I, I feel like that's, that's my, my, my soulmate. So, you know, just, seeing them being able to do better, even though, you know, my dad's not here anymore. But, you know, like, I wish that there would have been somebody advocating for my dad, you know, the way that I advocate for my husband at the time, you know, maybe, you know, maybe my dad would have got the actual help that he needed, you know, there's no telling, you know, I I just want to see a a better people We're we're not all perfect, Mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes we all hit you know, certain bumps in life, you know, and we just kind of veer off and we just need somebody to get us back on track, mm-hmm. which, you know, I, I grew up in juvenile um, as well. You know, I spent a lot of my childhood in juvenile. So, you know, I it, it wasn't because I was a bad person. You know, I just veered off a little bit. I was dealing with some things at home and, you know, my dad not being in the house, mm-hmm. you know, it, it really affected me. And I just needed somebody to kind of put me back on track and, you know, by the grace of God, I had really good correctional officers and, you know, employees around me in the juvenile uh, detention centers 
that really pushed me and motivated me. And I think that that's what, you know, really helped me do a change in my own life. Mm-hmm. So that's powerful. I mean, because you bring up so many excellent points again, but one is that we all have to help each other. You know, what good mm-hmm. are we even doing if you're not helping someone else along the way? And we, we all need helpers. And the fact that you're still there for, you know, your husband, you know, I have no doubt that you would have been an amazing advocate for your father. So, you know, I just encourage you to keep going and stay the path. I'm just, I'm just proud of you. So thank you. Sure. Let's see the next question. What changes would you like to see made to the current system of justice, as well as the prison system? What could they do better? They could do a better job in rehabilitating people. I feel like that's our biggest fail or our biggest failure to the justice system is that we're not rehabilitating people. We're just warehousing them. We're not doing anything to change uh, their situations you know, when they do hit these bumps in life, you know, the economy is, it's, it's hard out here. You know, it's, it's hard for a lot of people. You know, a lot of times you see people are being arrested for money reasons, um, you know, job reasons, you know, just really along those lines. I mean, you don't just really have somebody just wake up one day and be like, you know, what? I'm going to go do this just because that's what I want to do. Not sitting there saying that it's not, mm-hmm. but a lot of the times, People are dealing with a struggle in life, whether it's to pay their rent, to, you know, take care of their kids or, you know, just anything along those lines. And they can't make ends meet. And so they go and they, you know, commit a crime and then they wind up in prison. And when they're released from prison, they're given, I I believe it's like $25 on like a, a visa card or something like that. But they're not really given anything, you know, to set them you know, up for success when they're released. I mean, they're like, hey, you got to report to probation within 24 to 48 hours. And oh, by the way, you got to pay this monthly fee. And uh, by the way, you need to find a job. You need to have all this done, like right now, like, you know, they're snapping their fingers Mm -hmm. at these individuals. And sometimes they go to prison for so long that they lose their families. They lose their jobs, they lose their homes, their cars, you know, just they're detached from society, mm-hmm. you know. And so when they come out, they have nothing. And so it's like, what are we doing for them when they are released? I don't see that we're doing anything. And I don't see that we're doing anything for them when they're in prison. We have all these, you know, classes, motivation for change, reentry. We have all these classes and it's like we're telling them what to do, but what resources are we putting with these, you know, lessons and, hey, this is what you're supposed to do when you get out. So I just don't, I, I don't, I don't see what we're doing right now is working because we have more people who are reoffending than we have who are being successful in completing probation. Because like you said, we're not rehabilitating, we're warehousing. And if I could get our listeners to take away anything, remember that we are not rehabilitating, we're warehousing. You know, mm-hmm. where are the successful programs? Where are the incentivizing so that people want to do better? You know, there's so many things that we can offer the men and women behind the wall and we're not doing it, but we're slapping on the name, you know, rehabilitation, but that's not what's happening. So I just thank you, Erica, for just, again, seconding that, you know, rehabilitation is not occurring and we have a lot of things to change and fix and break. And um, I'll just stop there before I go on. But, you know, what would you like our listeners to take away from this discussion? I would like for, you know, people to, you know, hear my story. It's just been, you know, a little 
pieces here and there of, you know, like what I've been going through and, you know, how I grew up, but, you know, just like take it into your hearts to understand that you could wake up one day and not realize that you could be in my shoes Mm. and not realize that that could be your husband or, you know, your wife or your mom or dad or, you know, kid in the same situation that my husband and, you know, my dad were in and, you know, just, just listen to us advocates, you know, get involved, you know, really, really look at what we're saying. And when we're sitting there saying like, Hey, this is wrong. Join with us because there's not a lot of us out here and we need others supports. And like, we need people support who's doesn't even have a loved one incarcerated. You know what I mean? Like we need everybody's support. And it's just like tell a friend, you know, to tell a friend type thing. Talk about it because we're not talking about it enough. And, you know, these things keep going and going and going and getting, you know, more messed up. And you never know, like these people who are being released, who are not being rehabilitated can be your neighbor. So what would you prefer? Would you prefer to have a person who's been rehabilitated to be your neighbor? Or would you just rather, you know, have somebody who's not been rehabilitated, their, you know, mental health or drug abuse issue hasn't been addressed, and they're your next door neighbors. So just, you know, get involved. There's a lot of Facebook groups, literally you can type in criminal justice, and groups will, you know, pop up and just get in there, you know, just read, read what people are saying, look at the videos, look at the pictures. We have a real bad, you know, violence um, issue as well in the prisons. They're getting stabbed. People are getting stabbed, getting rolled out in laundry carts, all kinds of things. So, you know, we we definitely need y'all's help. <laughs> you bring up, again, just great points because over 2.1 million people are behind the wall in this country. Men and women behind the wall from jails to prisons. And so their mothers, their fathers, their grand, you know, parents, their husbands, their wives, their cousins. And so they belong. They're part of us. We're all a part of humanity. You can't just shut them out and turn away and, oh, they're, no, they're part of humanity. and We must fight for them. So even if you don't have someone personal behind the wall, you know, find a pen pal and get involved. They need our voice. And so Erica, thank you so much for again, bringing that up. Some people think that, oh, well, I don't know anyone incarcerated or it's a it's a problem detached from me. No, it's a part of all of us. And how men and women are being treated in Georgia, in Angola, in Alabama DOC, where they're sleeping on the floor, in Rikers, where they're sleeping on the floor covered in feces. We can't turn a blind eye. So thank you for bringing that up. And as I, this is the last question. And so thank you so much for hanging in there. How can people get a hold of you or work with you in some capacity? That's a great question. I've been in the process of trying to, you know, get a um, a website up, but I, I have made an email um, separate from my personal email. It's the anonymous voices uh, one at gmail.com. And so you can pretty much email me there. We have a Facebook group, the organization verified and against institutionalized railroading. So you can look for that page on Facebook. There's Phil. Phil knows how to get in touch with me. Even you, you know how to get in touch with me. And you know, I'm, I'm in a lot of the Facebook groups. Uh, they have no voice inmate support. But yeah, so th- those are a couple, you know, ways that you can get in touch with me. I've kind of you know, backed up from everything for a couple months, just because it's, you know, it's been very stressful on my end and the things that I've been dealing with. But um, I hope to start back up, you know, 2023 and really start pushing because we got some bills 
that are, you know, out there that we need passed. I mean, Erica, I just can't thank you enough for coming on. I mean, we got the two Ericas, Erica Squared and Biz. I love that. And I just want you to keep up with the activism and the fight. And there were so many things I can take away from this conversation. But one, in addition to everything else, is the importance of self-care for advocates, for family members. It is a tough fight because our families and friends are going through unconscionable things behind the wall. And as a result, the way they communicate and so on and so forth can be a lot. So you just reminded us of the importance of self-care for ourselves, whether that be mental health therapy or spa days or whatever you do for mental health healing. You know, we really have to make sure we're tapping into that. So thank you for stopping on uh, today and being on the wall behind and beyond. I hope I did feel it proud. Um, and thank you, Eric. I appreciate you. Oh, yeah, no no problem. You know, I, I appreciate y'all for letting me come on and, you know, try to get others involved and, you know, just tell my story and hopefully that it inspires somebody else. Well, thank you. And you have a wonderful afternoon and we'll be in touch soon. All right. Thank you. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speaker or our guests and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the wall behind and beyond.